Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Guys, I think we can all agree that we are just awash in gratitude uh, to the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of listeners who have written in in the past week uh, after I asked whether you thought that we should remain a daily podcast. Overwhelming majority uh, say yes. and, and the few people who have written it to say no say it's just like, it's too much, it's too, too many glories, too much wonders, too many wonders. And so you have, uh, you have um, stroked our egos, you have, uh, you have salved our consciences, and you have made us feel so good. I mean, we have the, we have the dozens and dozens of people who are crying for more Abe. Uh, we be have careful the, what you wish for. Right, that we have the uh, many people who uh, seem to have kind of a crush on Christine, I think, and the uh, and the and the the Noah the Noah fan club is well established and uh, and uh, seems to like it when Noah and I disagree. That's the interesting thing is there there seems to be a kind of uh, ho- desperate hope that there will be moments of disagreement between us so that we can we can we can uh, we can have it out. I think it's just a subtle way of trying to get me fired. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just point out that that a lot of our listeners, uh, I was so uh, grateful to hear from uh, the listeners even outside of the U.S. We have listeners in New Zealand. We have listeners in Hong Kong and the U.K. It's really gratifying to know that people are are tuning in from outside the continental U.S., uh, Canada as well. Um, And we really appreciate that, especially since the time zone differences and time differences mean that often you're listening to us days behind and you still tune in. So that's really, it's really nice. A lot of them have uh, interesting stories too. I mean, not not to get into any of them individually, but, but, but they are, um, they're sometimes quite fascinating. It's interesting. People just sort of say, explain who they are, uh, where they, you know, why they started listening, um, where they were from, where they moved to, uh, how they listen. They're on their morning walk. They, they listen during dinner. You know, it's, um, as I say, in general, if we uh, if we have uh, brought any a light into anybody's life in the last uh, year and a couple of months, um, you know, I can't imagine anything better to have have heard. So thank you very very much. Um, other good news, of course, comes from uh, the really staggering uh, COVID decline numbers, um, which I think are now uh, it's now unstoppable. Uh, uh, granted, the numbers that we see most recently come uh, from a holiday weekend, and we, we need to be cautioned that reporting sometimes will lag and all of that. But um, but we are we are now we are now very very close to the point at which uh, even Anthony Fauci said that we we would have to consider the pandemic over, which is a two week average of you know fewer than ten thousand new cases. Um, and I think we're probably a week uh, to 10 days away from that being the established standard. Um, uh, death rates have plunged, hospitalizations have plunged even more radically. Um, and so, uh, and all of the available evidence suggests that the vaccines protect against the new variants. And as, as we've been saying, the idea that the new variants are, um, are like, um, versions of, uh, of monsters in a sequel, you know, where they have to be twice as evil as the original, 
um, it may well be that uh, it's not that they're 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 twice as virulent. They they might be considerably less virulent. We don't really know. All we do know is that uh, is that there is protection against them, and um, and that uh, <clears throat> and that we are approaching numbers that comport with herd immunity. That is to say, that we have um, more than fifty percent of the uh, nation uh, has at least one shot, and then we have thirty-five million people who got COVID uh, over the course of the last year. And if they uh, retain antibodies, then effectively we are approaching 70% of the population uh, that that is. And, you know, from what we first heard until Fauci started saying, no, no, we need 211% of people vaccinated and, uh, you know, and, and sealed in plastic uh, like the boy in the bubble with a, you know, with a gas mask and, a, and an oxygen tank in order to declare us, uh, uh, you know, at, at herd immunity. 70 percent is what we were first told was kind of like a, a general ballpark number and we're, we're going to get there also in a couple of weeks i think at but least one shot Fauci himself has later admitted that nobody really knows what a herd immunity threshold is it's just sort of a guessing game so your number is as good as anybody in the public health communities uh, insofar as his admission is is the general consensus within his profession that they don't have any idea what that threshold is nor is he really being all that uh, considered about our level of individual case rates in the United States representing an end of the pandemic. When he talked about this over the weekend, he told the Yahoo News reporters that, quote, as long as there's some degree of activity throughout the world, there will always be the danger of variants emerging and diminishing somewhat the effectiveness of our vaccines, which is to say that there will always be the threat of another outbreak, pandemic style outbreak that will undermine progress and force us back into the pandemic status quo of 2020. The, the, struggle, the struggle is real for Anthony Fauci going forward, I think, because you're going to see, I think, in the next year, he's going to start getting all the awards and the the kind of retrospective thank yous that, you know, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic when he was uh, often uh, the person put up as the alternative, uh, him and Cuomo, the alternative to Trump. But I think he's now going to take his victory lap. So it'll be interesting to see if his rhetoric starts to shift as the awards and, and thank yous all continue, the official thank yous all continue to pile up because he does, he, he has been ping-ponging back and forth in, in the recent month or past month or two on his television news appearances between saying, wow, we've really come through the worst of this. We're really, you know, going forward is very optimistic to what Noah said this weekend. He was more pessimistic again. And I wonder when he's going to settle on on uh, the message going forward because he's going to be asked to be given all these speeches and awards and, you know, the country's gratitude, et cetera, et cetera. I do say that with a fair amount of cynicism, because as we've discussed on the podcast many times, I think he's been one of the worst public health communicators uh, we've ever had in this country. He's led, it's led to a lot of confusion and a lot of panic and anxiety among regular people who, who shouldn't have relied upon his messaging, but did. So I, I'll, I'll be watching closely how he handles all the uh, praise and gratitude he's going to be, it's going to be heaped on him in the next year. I think um, the public, the 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 great Fauci worship has dimmed a little bit. Actually, I mean, it's you know, aside from the among people um, such as us who, you know, were never there with it. Um, but I think even among those who took his word as gospel, um, there's been too many flip flops, uh, too many dire warnings that fizzled. Thankfully. Um, that he see, he seems uh, has seemed too at odds with um, the facts uh, as they actually stand, 
so he's just not, I, I don't think he's that kind of figure anymore exactly. Well, I mean, he isn't in part because no one no one could retain that level of, uh, you know, heroic uh, saint, saintliness uh, deserved or, or undeserved. And I do think that there was something um, neurotic about what he did this weekend. That is to say that it was of the level of, uh, no, no, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, we're not out of the woods yet. And the, the simple fact of the matter is we, we are out of the woods. We've probably been out of the woods for two months if by being out of the woods means you know you're you're um you're, you're maybe still in the forest but you found the path and the path is very clear and very marked and you're not going to wander around in in circles uh for months not being able to find find your way through uh to to a clearing and then back to back to civilization the 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 hunger and the desire to say that we're we're out of the woods is mirrored in some media coverage this weekend which um, I think gets everything backwards and emotionally backwards, which is like now there is a real crisis coming for the unvaccinated, right? There were several articles. The New York Times had one. The Washington Post had one. The unvaccinated now face a threat unlike any other. And when you think about what that means, because, of course, you first think, oh, no, that's really bad. You know, it's really sad. Like people may get sick. And then you're like, this really now is a choice. This is the, the, the this is the choice that is being made. The choice that is being made is to risk getting COVID rather than getting the vaccine, and and no one else is implicated in that choice, but the people who make it. Because we, as the as the vaccinated people, aren't going to get sick from them, because all the evidence suggests that we are not going to get reinfected by or. If we do, the whole point of vaccines is to make sure that whatever we get is like is surpassingly mild and therefore is like getting a cold or getting the flu. It's not is not life threatening. Um, and and so they are making a choice uh, for whatever reason that they're making the choice. And we do not uh, we do not socially or collectively or anything like that have any obligation to them whatsoever what we have attempted to do for the last several months or what people have attempted to explain to them that they have an obligation to society as a whole that they have rejected and at some point we cannot be held accountable for their decision to risk covid because they find the notion of taking of getting the vaccine too risky but all that's sort of a red herring right culturally like so masking um went away in in new jersey over this weekend by edict, but not by convention. Um, so I sort of feel it, it is my social responsibility to barge into whatever institution I'm going into completely maskless and then await some sort of social stigma to descend on me or somebody to tell me otherwise, which they don't because the, the statute is gone or at least the, the governor's uh, mandate is gone. Um, but you know, everybody in Whole Foods isn't masked up because they're afraid the guy next to them is vaccinated. It's not like they're doing this because it's socially responsible anymore. It has no social responsibility uh, aspect to it. It's it's a personal choice and a projection of your particular priorities. You can call it virtue signaling, what have you. But that doesn't exist in more working class establishments where there probably are unvaccinated people to the extent they even exist in this state. It's like 70% of the state has at least one dose. 
Um, but those are the places where you're going to see people being unmasked and, and no stigma, no policing whatsoever. And that's been the case for a while, but it's definitely class-based. Okay. I was in a mall uh, this weekend. I was in the Palisade Center Mall in Nyack, New York, which is a gigantic, um, not high-end mall. I mean, it's not, it's a, it's a very kind of like basic middle-class mall with a lot of, you know, it, it's not like a fashion high-end thing. And, and, um, uh, there almost everybody was wearing masks because for convenience sake, I think that is to say that you don't know which individual business is going to say you need to be masked or you don't need to be masked. So taking it off, putting it off, taking it off, putting it off. Blah, blah, blah. Like, so you just put it on and walk around with it on. And I, I took mine off mostly cause I wasn't going in, but like when I went into the target, I put, put my, put my mask on, even though I believe target doesn't have a masking policy but all the staffers were wearing them and stuff like that so we're still in this kind of weird uh odd middle you know middle area and also like my kids like i have a i have a 10 year old and he kind of still has to wear a mask uh he shouldn't have to um and he kind of like he's totally used to it so i'm not gonna like pull it off his face he does it without being asked or being told he doesn't complain about it or anything like that. And so I, I just don't know if that's a thing. Well, that's the next fight in this situation. Um, and it really is nobody's considered, nobody in the, in the pro-masking side of this debate has considered the consequences. Remember when Rachel Maddow said the other day that she had to rewire her brain to assume that the people who were unmasked weren't threats to her. Right. This is kind of an assumption that those people have nefarious intention or just, you know, you know, evil people, bad people. And that equation is going to be reversed now because more people are going to be taking off the masks as a sign of being vaccinated. And those who don't are going to be perceived as threats to this particular cohort that perceives, you know, this this pandemic to not be over, to be a dangerous threat to them. And anybody who's who's flaunting those guidelines is a threat to them. So people who are masked represent a threat. And it's going to be all children. All children are going to be perceived by a particular person, a neurotic person. But nevertheless, um, we have a lot of those around us who are going to think that young children who deserve affection, who need to be in environments that are that are caring and loving and accepting, are going to be perceived as little mini vectors of transmission. That's, well, and- that's psychologically uh, scary as a prospect. It's also where I think there's going to be continued battles waging. I see them here in D.C. with regard to school reopenings, because, yes, listeners, we my, our schools are still largely closed here in D.C. and will remain closed through this school year. But the discussion about how to reopen next year has already started. And what I've heard from a lot of parents that I speak to is uh there's been a real shift among certainly among high school and middle schoolers who are eligible for vaccination. There's zero tolerance for the idea that their kids should have to wear a mask to school next year. It's like everyone, the teachers have had options for vaccination. The kids have all the option of vaccination. Then you have a whole cohort who says, well, vaccination is something you can't force us to do. So if we choose not to, you still are required. The institutions of the school system are required to protect us and our children Here, of course, in D.C., there's a whole racial component to this that makes it even more difficult to have honest conversations about what's going on and and the real risks to kids and to teachers and whatnot. But I do think Noah's right. There's going to be until there's, you know, vaccination might never really be available for younger kids. And honestly, it's not scientifically truly necessary in terms of their risk. If you look at their overall risk, they've always been very low risk. We've talked about this a lot. But the idea that the institutions are going to still be 
complying with this kind of extreme safetyism once we roll into fall and reopen uh, more and more businesses and schools, it, it is going to lead to to more battles. I think. I don't know. Oh, Abe, sorry. Well, I just want to. Well, this goes back to this earlier point about the about the piece about uh, the unvaccinated now face a scary uh, new future. Um, the other thing about that argument is that it's not true, because those of us who chose to got to get the vaccine got it. Um, we have made for those who haven't gotten it a much less scary future. Um, we, we have contributed massively to effective herd immunity um, that makes it very unlikely for them not to get it. Um, so, which makes it even more unlikely that kids will not be vectors of transmission. Yeah, I also I also think that an attitude that Noah thought was going to be prevalent really last May or June, but but was not really is going to be by by July fourth, which is enough already. Like uh, you're you're uh, Christine, you're sort of projecting into September that there'll still be a kind of um, dominating attitude, or at least a sort of a uh, a significant portion of public opinion will 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 play a role in whether or not people have to be masked or teachers can stay home or whatever it is. Um, if those numbers, you know, sink under 10,000, 5,000 and the death toll, you know, goes down into the, the double digits or, you know, the very, very low single digits uh, before it starts, you know, really hitting a, a, a nothing number to the point where it's going to be interesting to see whether that data will even be collected in the same way. Um, uh, because, uh, for example, testing at some point, it will not be necessary to demand that everybody get a test before they go somewhere. Um, it's expensive. Uh, it's expensive for the people who test. It's expensive for for insurance guys. It's expensive for whatever. And you know, if nobody really is at risk of having COVID, the notion that you're going to have to take a to have a COVID test every time you get on a plane or every time you want to go to a, a venue or something like that, that's gonna that's gonna fade. It's gonna dissipate. Um, it may well be that it has to be sort of governmental fiat in some sense, like you know. It, a governor will de declare that no one will be allowed to force you to take a COVID test now that for two weeks, uh, you know, the case numbers in the state of, you know, uh, Globovia, um, it, you know, is, uh, you know, is 50 a day. Um, and that may be enough to break it. But I, I just I can't see that we are going to be in the same emotional space uh, for this that much longer unless there is some kind of a reversal. Uh, unless there's a summer surge or whatever, which again should should really not not be the case, and it's very hard for us, I think, to to move out of that into another realm of thought, also because we're just we're, we're combatants in this war, and it's almost like the war, you know, kind of peters out. It doesn't end. There's no declaration of victory. It just petered out. But this this is where my concern is, is I think that's right. And I, I hope that I absolutely hope that that's that's the trajectory we're on. But I think that there have been many interest groups uh, throughout the past year and a half that have figured out how to uh, use their power to uh, make demands on public officials and, and on the public in general to conform to their own fears. And because we've, we've kind of had a zero, zero cases attitude going forward, in large part because of the bad messaging by our public health officials and the really poor way they explained relative risk for different populations, 
that you you might still see, and I actually see this rhetoric with the school reopening stuff, uh, that you have to have the option. Your fears have to be catered to. The fears of parents and, and kids have to be catered to and give them the option of distance learning or teachers the option of distance learning. And maybe there's a, whatever the extenuating circumstance, that also has to be catered to. And I think unless, as you say, John, unless public officials, mayors, governors, whatnot, step up and say, no, we're going back to the way things were because that's how we run our institutions then there is going to be that opening for a lot of these groups and whether it's teachers unions, whether it's fearful anti-vaxxers, whatever it is. So I worry that we we have seen a lot of um, spineless lack of leadership in many elected officials over the past year. And I worry that those demands, the really loud voices that don't represent a majority, but are still quite effective at, at making demands public and, and cowing these officials that that might overcome the obvious rational approach you're describing. I mean, uh, or you can look at it in reverse, which is to say that the rubber is going is starting to uh, meet the road. And that's why we've talked in the last couple of weeks about whether or not Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers herself, um, has begun to realize that the that the messaging of the of, of the teachers unions um, has started to become politically problematic. And we see this in other areas and, and realms um, that aren't particular that are are only indirectly related to COVID. I mean, if you are a blue state, you know what what Walter Russell Mead called the blue state model of governance is now coming. You know, now that a lot of their policy uh, prescriptions are actually being put into place, largely in the realm of criminal justice, um, real world consequences are happening before our very eyes. You know, in New York City. Uh, I mean, we know what's going on in Portland. We know what's going on in Seattle. We know what's going on in Minneapolis. These crime surges, um, again, with a disproportionate effect on minority communities, because that's what happens when there are crime surges. Um, this um, absolute terror of of involvement by the police departments and the the politicians who have been cowed by the radicals. And in New York City, um, you know... Uh, Every day, there is a story about a grotesque street crime. Every single day, uh, uh, an Asian woman gets punched in the face. Somebody gets slashed on a subway platform. Uh, there's footage, uh, because now there's footage of everything everywhere, of some guy getting yanked through a subway a subway um, turnstile, pulled back by two guys, beaten up, and having $120 taken off him. Every single day. And that is something that politically is not sustainable. Like, I, you know, we sit here and we say, look, there's no Republican politician who can win the mayoralty of New York City. There's no, there are no Republicans in these areas that uh, can win. Something has got to give. I mean, the, the, the term that uh, Vin Canato used when he wrote his book about John Lindsay, uh, who was the mayor of New York City from 1966 to 1975 or some, something like that, um, was the ungovernable city. And, and it was Lindsay's governance that led to the, a kind of wild reaction. It was within the Democratic Party with Ed Koch, who had been a leftist politician, a leftist Greenwich Village reformist politician who became a sort of neocon mayor beginning in, in 1977. Like that was a real thing and it happened within the party. And, and uh, I just, I don't know whether safetyism itself and the kind of, and the depredations of what's going on 
with the educational system. I mean, I sent you guys this headline in the New York Times this morning, uh, one of the great versions of Republicans pounce ever. Okay, so here, here, is the, here is the headline. Disputing racism's reach, comma, Republicans rattle American schools. In a culture war brawl that has spilled into the country's educational system, Republicans at the local, state, and national levels are trying to block curriculums that emphasize systemic racism. Uh, number one, this is the New York Times, and it should not be using the word curriculums, which is um, grammatically uh, horrific. Um, but nonetheless, uh, disputing racism's reach, Republicans rattle American schools. Who's rattling American schools? Who's who's rewriting American curricula to turn the United States into a country of great evil? It's not Republicans who rattled American schools. It's the New York Times and its idiot, sixteen monstrous, evil 1619 project. But the very fact that that framing is how they want to cover this, not Republicans pounce now, but Republicans rattle, indicates that this has real, this is a populist cause that has real teeth in part because it is, it is going up against and warring against something that is real and something that is a lie and something that is being promoted as a truth that is a lie. And that is where the cognitive dissonance that creates neoconservatism, and I don't in this case mean the neoconservative movement of the 60s and 70s, of which commentary was the essentially one of the two founding documents, but neoconservatism in general in the, in the moment where you say, no, this is a damnable lie. Two plus two does not equal five. I am not Winston Smith. You are not going to make me believe things that are not true. And, and it's interesting to see the times doubling down on it. I mean, not interesting. It's, it's totally predictable. But if you and I know John always says never read the comments. But if you read comments on New York Times online articles about anything regarding critical race theory, you see quite a few people and their names are attached to it because you have to register to comment on Times articles will say, look, I'm a diehard liberal and even I'm concerned about this or someone who says, you know, I didn't think I thought that conservatives were overreacting to this. But then I had to go to one of these seminars that my HR work, my the HR department in my workplace sponsored, and I had to confess my sins as a white person. It, it is actually out there and people are concerned, not just conservatives. Um, so I, I have to say, you know, uh, a year ago in my piece, yes, this is re this regarding the crime question. Um, and yes, this is a revolution. I said one of the ways the revolution falls apart is um, when the uh, the results of the policies it advocates produce real world consequences that those who were um, sort of such that those who were sympathetic to the initial revolutionary impulse have to take a step back and go, oh, I didn't I didn't want this. Um, and I think that is exactly the case with the anti-police stuff and um, the crime we're now seeing. Uh, the the revolutionaries and the the far leftists, whatever, they'll they'll still be on the anti-police page. Um, but I think this is where the those who are encouraging them from the sort of you know liberal bleachers um, uh, peel themselves away. Can we? I want to introduce a, a sort of a weird example of that sort of thing. So, Congresswoman Nancy Mace this morning uh, says that on Memorial Day, her home was vandalized and produces a lot of images of some really disgusting anarchist rhetoric, 
all politicians are bastards, the, the anarchist A in that circle, um, some profanity, no gods, no masters, all this really, you know, kind of noxious, directionless um, protest language, but also pass the PRO Act, spray painted on the side of her house. The PRO Act is a piece of legislation working its way through the house that would essentially undermine or even destroy the sharing economy. It's designed, it's, it's activists say, it's advocates say to extend National Labor uh, Relations Board protections to all shops, make it more difficult to pass uh, right to work laws, force members of, of, of a unionized shop who aren't members to pay dues to that union. It's, as I talked about in a piece for the magazine this month, it's a cultural issue, clearly. And you think these people are just really interested in making sure that that everybody has access to employer-provided benefits? No, they don't know the details of this. All they know is that this is what Democrats want and Republicans don't because they're evil and they hate unions and they hate people getting protections in the, in the workforce. And it's it's become a revolutionary cultural issue for them manifesting if this is true, if all this is, you know, wasn't faked. And I don't think Congressman Nancy Mace is faking any of this. Then it's become a revolutionary mantra, a violent revolutionary mantra. Pass the PRO Act is the revolutionary mantra of our time. That's what I have to say. That's where, that's where you know, this is really, you know, I, I mean, at least, at least in, 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 in when, when Abe wrote, uh, yes, this is, uh, yes, this is a revolution. Um, you know, we really were sort of like looking at, um, at Maoism, uh, not 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 at not at you know imposing National Labor Relations Board standards on on well, but Uber. That, but this gives away the game. I they know. know what the ultimate objective is here, and it's yeah. not L- NLRB protections. It's organizing the workforce into one politically cohesive unit so that the workers of the world unite. Yeah, but this is the way. This is the way capitalism actually ends up, or you know, d- bourgeois democracy ends up. Uh, turning revolutionary fervor into kind of re- relatively uh, mundane, banal, or you know, culturally uh, foolish, but you know, not all that far-reaching change. You know, that it's sort of like how the 1960s. You know, there were uh, bombings and you know, uh, d- d- disorder and decay and the and the, the Manson family and Jim Jones and everything else and all this. And what w- what's left? You know, what's left? The Beatles and you know, <laughs> Carol King and uh, Jefferson Airplane and you know, that's what's left. What's left is the cultural residue. I mean, not that the political residue hasn't. You know, not not that there weren't cancerous elements of the political residue but but um sometimes sometimes the country is strong enough to take that stuff and and turn it into parts per million in a giant stew um i I think all this applies um to the street violence aspect of the revolution um uh but the actual more maoist part meaning the thought policing and the speech policing and the cancel culture um, and just the sort of shaping of public discourse and 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 arts and everything else in a certain uh, direction, um, that shows no sign of abating. That that to no. me is a much more stubborn problem. And the other the other new element is that it used to be that the people who did the performative cultural warrior stuff, you know, the the destructive revolutionary aspects, were rarely also the same as our elected officials. Sometimes they were at the local level, but we now have at the national level a whole group that that rather proudly declares itself uh, activists 
first, legislators second. So it's no surprise, actually, that you would see the anarch, the pseudo anarchists attacking a congresswoman's house actually embracing the legislation that those activist legislators are themselves promoting. Right. Now, you know, we started this whole conversation talking about uh, the decline in, in, in COVID. And, um, and I want to... Um, commend to everybody uh dan senor's post corona podcast which i've talked about here uh, many times before uh the podcast available at apple google play stitch wherever you get your podcasts um dan is doing a weekly examination of what the country and the world will be like as we move through this period and move into the period in which we have to deal with the after effects of covid um and and his uh, his latest is is really a barn burner um uh, he talks to uh, Senator Tom Cotton, uh, who, of course, um, came under immense assault from um, from the kind of liberal establishment for raising questions about uh, whether or not uh, the uh, the uh, spread of the pandemic uh, from Wuhan, China, was the result of a of a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab, rather than uh, rather than ha- having. Uh, gone from animal to human at the at the wet market in Wuhan, <clears throat> called a conspiracy theorist, uh, politician, scientist, media people, all uh, going after his jugular for raising this in February of 2020. And of course, now um, there is a sufficient amount of uh, evidence to suggest that we need to examine that uh, lab leak hypothesis that uh, President Biden has authorized uh, the turning on of the supercomputers to um, crunch data uh, that will help uh, resolve this question, or at least uh, bring bring us closer to an understanding. Uh, as uh, you know, eighty thousand animals have been tested uh, in China since uh, the pandemic began to try to find the source of the, of the origin or something like that, and there literally uh, there seems to be absolutely no animal spread whatsoever, which would indicate that this notion that it's came from jumped from an animal to a human uh maybe beggars uh sort of like uh a, a, a conventional understanding uh, uh cotton is fascinating and our our our, our colleague uh, tech uh, commentary columnist um jim meggs begins the podcast laying out the lab leak hypothesis and and it is a hypothesis. It's not a fact. There's no, we have, you know, it's almost like the evidence, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence of whatever you want to call it. We don't really know where, where this is going. We just need to find it out. Uh, it's great. Like all of Dan's podcasts, Post Corona with Dan Senor, go download it today. Listen, you will be enlightened. You will be amused. You'll be entertained. You'll be horrified. You'll be educated. And uh, what what more can you ask uh, from, a, from a podcast? I ask you. Uh, so, uh, where, where do we, uh, where do we go from here? You guys, Mike Flynn's comments over the weekend, which have uh, lit a fire under yes. a particular sort of journalist. Yeah. Oh, not just a journalist. Right. So, so, uh, I mean, uh, what Michael Flynn, um, whom, which by the not way, to say they're not disturbing at all. No, no. But... So Michael Flynn, uh, whom we have defended in the pages of commentary against the charge that he was guilty of, you know, collusion, uh, with uh, with uh, Russia and um, you know in in a series of really magisterial pieces by by Eli Lake um, went into the sort of the the persecution the prosecution and persecution of Michael Flynn um, nonetheless is a is a is a disgrace to his uniform and a disgrace to our country and a loathsome human being I mean he basically 
said what we need in this country is a coup like the like what they did in Burma uh, to reinstall uh, Donald Trump as as president. Um, uh, granted, he is retired, so he as a retired member of the military, he no longer has to his 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 sworn purpose isn't to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, but calling for a coup, a former national security advisor, even if he was only national security advisor for 21 days or 24 days, but also former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, senior official uh, in the U.S. government. Um, uh, this is uh, a, a, a really uh, nauseating, appalling, and disgusting thing he did. However, it's really funny because... Uh, Robert Robert Reich, little Robert Reich, a former former uh, labor secretary under under Bill Clinton, who has become a sort of radical voice on Twitter uh, as he's gotten older uh, and no wiser, uh, has gotten moved far, further and further further to the left. Called for Flynn's arrest for having said we need a coup in the United States. Because I don't know if you know this, but uh, there's no First Amendment. I was like, going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the, but that that is, I think, indicative of the uh, desperate, weird psychological uh, hole that that is is empty now that Trump is off the scene. So there, anytime one of Trump's useful idiots says something publicly, there's a mad dash to to, to race back to that you know comfortable place where they are morally on the high ground and everybody else is beneath them. Um, particularly for Robert Reich, there's a great irony there. But there, it it is. I think uh, Flynn's horrible, and his comments are absolutely appalling. But it was a pretty obscure venue. Yes, am I am I correct about well, that? Well, okay. So it was, was it a conference. What was yeah? The but venue? it was one of these. It was this kind of Trump Restoration Weekend conference, and at the same conference, uh, you know, Sidney Powell, Trump's right. uh, a lawyer, uh, one of those you know one of those people who was his lawyer for ten minutes, and then people around him said, "What are you crazy? This woman is a psychopath. Get rid of her." And he got rid of her, but she was the Kraken, there. as we yeah, call yeah, the Kraken, right? Um, she said, according to her understanding, Trump will be reinstated as president by August. That's not according to Maggie Haberman's reporting at the New York Times. That's not just her saying that, but the former president himself is telling confidants. That okay. Ab- she, absurd Ma- theory, and Maggie, I love to be as so dismissive yes. of it. Okay, but it is not. It's not without its threats because of the psychological hold that this narrative has over the Republican Party, which has embraced it as yes. a sort of a part of its identity. Okay, so Maggie quotes Doni O'Sullivan of CNN as having heard that Trump is telling people that he hears that he's going to be reinstated by August. So this is a game of telephone. We don't have, you know, authorized and uh, Trump's words have been uh, mischaracterized enough over time that we should be prudent about. But perhaps, that, but it but perfectly that. comports with every email that we have out of the out of Donald Trump's organization, which continues to wallow in this idea that the, the election was fraudulent in places like New Hampshire for some bizarre reason. Right. Okay. Um, it's it comports very closely with what we've seen his public behavior to be. Right. Let let's just let's just state for the record, thirty nine minutes into this podcast, that there is no methodology or approach that can lead to Trump being reinstated as president. Reinstatement is not a thing in the United States, in our constitution, our government. 
he could be installed as president as the result of a massive coup, which of course would be the end of the American experiment as we as we know it. But these people are walking around saying he, you know, the truth will out and then he will be reinstated as president. He will not be reinstated as president. Let me just make this clear. I don't think anybody listening to this probably thinks that he could be reinstated as president. But Trump was not elected by the American people. This is an important point that the left is all up in arms about. Trump is made president by a vote of the electors of the Electoral College that is certified by, uh, you know, by Congress that was the entire reason for the June 6th insurrection, which was that the ballots of the electors went to the Senate and were being counted by the president of the Senate and accepted, you know, basically in a box, and that is the presidency. Then there is no provision for its reversal. So it's not that you could prove that things were stolen so the election can go backwards. And the concern is not the 99% of people who understand all that, but the 1%, a very significant portion of the population, who knows what it is, but even 1% of the population is millions of people who don't understand that, who do believe that, and who are capable of astonishing violence in its pursuit. So that's actually, it's a, that's a really important question. And it's one of these things that I think is a lost opportunity because we're never going to have a really good January 6th commission that looks into a lot of this, which could delve a little bit into the public opinion that uh, believes this. I mean, in some, because because there's, on the one hand, you could say that Trump's reinstatement theory, he's like the bitter homecoming queen who thinks the vote was rigged against him. But if there are enough people who believe that and support that, how will they act on that support, particularly if he's claiming he wants to be reinstated? I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. I would hope that it would be the ballot box, right? So we'll continue to see a Trumpier Republican Party, but at least we'd be using the democratically uh, acknowledged system of governments to do that. It'd still be terrible, but it wouldn't be as, I think, uh, scary as some of the stuff that they're suggesting at this conference. Look, Nancy Mace's, the defacement of Nancy Mace's house itself and the stuff that has gone on over the last year, not on the part of the right, but on the part of the left, indicates that we have moved into a period of potentially a new kind of political violence, right? The political violence that shook the country in the 1960s and 1970s, aside from the attempted assassinations of presidents and the assassinations of presidents and political leaders, tended not to be this kind of thing. But now that there's been a kind of populist spread of these irresponsible, reckless ideas and the uh, kind of uh, igniting of conspiracy theory and all of that, such that a, a, a lone uh, freshman congresswoman can have her house destroyed. Um, who's to say? I mean, how many violent acts does it take for the country's politics to be shifted forever, right? It took one violent act. It took one assassin in, in Dallas to alter the trajectory of American history in, in ways that we can't even begin to fathom, right? We don't we don't understand what the world would have been like had John F. Kennedy not been assassinated, but it would have been different. Our history would have been different, and it doesn't take much. And the weird part is that it it there could be a lot of it, and that's why Trump was unfit to be president in the first place, and why. Because he is somebody who never, from the outset of his candidacy, 
never abjured the notion that violence was somehow kind of a, uh, an arrow in the quiver of political power in the United States. And he opened that Overton window. He is the one who essentially created the permission structure in some way or other, walking around saying, beat the hell out of those protesters here. Or I hope, you know, I hope if, if you, you know, if you get arrested, I'll bail you out. However you want to call it, like the whole notion of a get out of jail free card for being Trump supporter. And so here we are. And most of the violence, despite what people think about, you know, Charlottesville and January says most of the violence that we've seen has been violence on the left. It's the stuff in Portland. It's the stuff in Seattle. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's the shoot up of the of the congressional uh, uh, softball game um, and, a, and a lot of that other stuff uh, that that somehow has somehow been sidelined by the mainstream media. But um, you only need 15 such acts to change American politics forever. We know Republican politicians tell each other privately that one of the reasons that they haven't voted for the January 6th commission or haven't been more critical of Trump or something like that is that some of them are genuinely frightened for their own safety and the safety of their families. Now, we can stand around and say, oh, they're cowards and this is what, you know, how can you do that? What's the matter? But, you know, this is where we start getting alarmed about, you know, America slipping into some kind of new South American style politics where people are physically intimidated into political action or inaction because of fear of threats to their children or their wives or something like that. It's, it's also got this um, um, dynamic that's very problematic because um, even if those kinds of acts don't come to pass, um, the response to the prospect of it um, encourages imprudent language, like Robert Reich saying you should arrest um, someone for saying something, right? And then that exacerbates the other side, and it, so it goes. You know, it sort of ping-pongs back and forth. Um, even just just by virtue of it being in the air now, um, there's a sort of level of vigilance um, in the or, or excitation, you know, in in the population that that makes things much scarier. Right, guys. So uh, time for me to talk to you again about the X chair. You've heard me talk about the X chair time and time again. The luxury supercar of office chairs with that patented dynamic variable lumbar support and XHMT technology that supports your lower back, brings uh, brings heat and massage therapy to your core, making it so much easier for you to sit for hours doing the work you have to do at your desk. That rickety old chair won't cut it from nine to five, so if you're not in the next chair, the one you got needs to go. Uh, you get that blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy perks that make working from home or the office a joy. Four different massage modes, fast warming heat technology. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. And it's now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1 844 4X chair. X chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free XWheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So the biggest political news outside the United States, at least 
you know, we're, we're concerned, um, is the uh, potential today or tomorrow or Thursday for uh, uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Bibi Netanyahu to be um, uh, succeeded in office by a uh, by a unity government cobbled together by as many as twelve different political parties in uh, Israel uh, f- that have come together simply for the express purpose of ousting Bibi Netanyahu from office. He has been in office uninterruptedly since two thousand nine and served for three years. Uh, in the 1990s, he will, uh, if this is indeed his uh, swan song, at least for the moment, uh, he will have served for um, something like 14, almost 15 years, uh, by far the uh, longest serving Israeli uh, prime minister and uh, one of the longest serving leaders, d- democratic leaders uh, uh, in, in our history, in, in, the, in, in world history. Um, and and the question that that this uh, raises is for for an American audience. Um, uh, hey, wait a minute! Like, didn't he just kind of win a war, or didn't didn't Israel just win a war in which uh, they were all unified behind? They all had the same goal, which was to get Hamas to stop firing its rockets. You didn't hear Israeli politicians attacking. Netanyahu for his behavior very much, you know, and and so shouldn't he benefit from that? Shouldn't he be benefiting from uh, how successful Israel has been in 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 combating uh, the coronavirus? Uh, why hasn't this strengthened him politically? And and so j- there are two quick answers to this. Number one, because there is a national consensus on on at least how to handle Gaza and Hamas if Hamas is going to fire rockets at, at Israel. Um, it's almost as though it, it, it doesn't matter who, who the prime minister will be from, from the from moderate, not far left, but sort of the moderate left to the far right. If Hamas is going to fire rockets at Israel, Israel is going to go at them with everything they've got and they're going to use Iron Dome to defend themselves and they are going to they are going to degrade Hamas's capabilities and 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 do whatever they can to scare Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad from staying out of the fight and so at the very least Netanyahu's uh, presidency or his prime ministership excuse me has established this deterrent force uh, as as sort of core basic Israeli foreign and domestic policy, and therefore Israelis can be confident that it will be carried out no matter who is prime minister. Um, that appears to be the case. The other is that any other leader, given the panoply of problems that Netanyahu has on him, would have been destroyed far far <laughs> far more quickly than that than he has. And I don't think he's even been destroyed yet. They say he's got three indictments against him. I think they're garbage, by the way, and I don't say this as a supporter of his or not, having read extensively into it. I think these indictments are nonsense um, and and are, uh, in some sense, politically motivated. But nonetheless, they've they've been a long time in coming, uh, years and years of action in relation to them. It's now going to work through the courts. It may take a year, something like that. But any other leader who was not as strong and not as successful as Netanyahu would have been ousted long before this. And uh, the third part is that he may not be done. Um, this coalition, which apparently is going to be led at the outset by Naftali Bennett, um, his one-time protege, um, is going to be an unbelievably weak and jury-rigged contraption. Uh, uh, Bennett himself has very little political power. His party holds seven seats out of 120 in the in the Knesset. Um, 
and uh, his partner, um, Yair Lapid, his party has 19 seats. For complex reasons, Bennett will go first as prime minister, followed by Lapid. Um, and, 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 and it's a unity government, meaning the whole point of the government is to bring as many parties in as possible to, uh, to, to sort of make sure that everybody's a check against everybody else's excessive ambitions and that the simple goal here is to move on from Bibi, to create a new political future for Israel that is post-Netanyahu. And I don't know if it's going to work. And I think most people don't think it's going to work. And most people think that it may not last very long. Uh, Bibi's um, conduct over the last week, week and a half in attempting to prevent this from happening has been kind of disgusting and disgraceful, I have to say, as somebody who is a pretty a, a pretty serious admirer of his. I mean, he's saying, you know, what if you vote for this, you're going to get the far left, you know, you're going to get the far left in there. Well, Naftali Bennett isn't a far leftist and neither is neither is Yair Lapid. What you might get is a, a weak and, and and completely incompetent government, but you're not going to get a leftist government. That's that's nonsense and it's an embarrassing thing for a major politician to say, um, even if he's you know desperately tap dancing trying to give, keep his 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 position um, uh, intact. If indeed this happens and he is and he is succeeded uh, as 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 Lapid has been given the mandate from the president uh, of, of of Israel to try to form this government, if he can form the government, then Netanyahu will be out. He won't have been ousted. It's not a coup. It's nothing like that. It will be a simple matter of uh, Israel doing what it can to prevent going to a fifth election. Since this would be this this what we're what we're dealing with here is the after effects of a fourth election in two years. That uh, that had led to no positive result. That couldn't that couldn't create a, a strong enough government to last. Um, and Bibi has been a caretaker pretty much uh, ever since. Um, and so uh, it's as a very unlikely this government will last. And and Bibi could be back in three months or six months, or 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 could win his win his cases or you know be essentially be acquitted on the, on these cases which can now which which by the way with him out of office can move much more quickly this this case was going to take this was going to take years if he was prime minister since he also had to be prime minister and not be full-time tried you could actually have the resolution of this be faster he could be acquitted and he's 70 years old so he's not right now we have a 78 year old president you know so uh you know uh, Winston Churchill was premier of, when he was 82 or something like that. Not that that was a successful premiership when Churchill was 82. Um, but nonetheless, uh, he, he is possibly far from over and this government is far from settled and its success is far from assured. But one thing I think you can say is that the uh, history will record Netanyahu as one of the great democratic leaders uh, of, of, of our, you know, of, of our time or of all time. Uh, it measurably enhanced this country's strategic position, its economic strength, um, and its uh, its existential strength. He led the country during a time when it has done everything it can to degrade uh, Iran's uh, efforts to threaten Israel existentially. He has expanded he has expanded Israel's reach um, to uh, Arab countries and to the world at large. Uh, he has made the relationship with America less central to Israel's future, which is important not only for 
for for for Israel in terms of it not being a country that appears to be a dependent ward on something else, but also simply because you know that's not a healthy situation to be in, uh, and Israel not through his doing, but through his at least by not interfering with it, Israel has gone has has be, is now the twenty seventh or twenty sixth richest country in the world, and you know just a generation ago it was in the hundreds. It was a poor country. It's now become a rich country. That wealth is not evenly spread. It has the same you know economic inequality problems that the other Western democracies do. Um, but it's still at just a colossal achievement. He he is a he is somebody whose historical record uh, can be put up against any other democratic leaders practically ever, uh, even though he's in a very small country. And um, he's a difficult person. He's a cunning uh, personality, um, and and uh, you know doesn't have a lot of friends, and everybody hates him. And he did not make provision for any kind of succession, or uh, you know he sort of um, lit the. You know, he 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 advances forward and he and he burns the ground on which he stood before to make it impossible for anybody to follow him. That was not visionary leadership, and it may lead to a humiliating conclusion. But you know, history will history will not his final days, if these are his final days, will not be what he is remembered for. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, most of us would die to be remembered as well as history will remember Bibi Netanyahu. And with that, we will uh, take a break until tomorrow. Uh, for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.